0: What would you do in this situation? Okay, imagine with me for a moment that if we changed things up a little bit at the beginning of this sermon, and instead of me starting to preach, instead this is what we did, we instead took a moment and we went around this entire room and had everyone answer this question. Okay, and here's the question that would be asked. What is the best or the greatest thing you have ever created. It, it could be something you've built. could be something you made with your hands. Something you wrote. Or even something you developed. You don't have to say it out loud, but how would you answer this question? What's the greatest thing you yourself have ever made. NPR has a podcast called How I Built This. Have any of you ever heard of this podcast before, How I Built This? Each episode interviews the founder or creator of some successful business. And the stories of how these things came to be are quite fascinating. For example, do you know how Zumba classes got started? It all started when aerobics teacher Beto Perez he brought the wrong music to class. So what he did was he improvised a dance routine to go along with it. For his students this was much more fun than work and it eventually grew into one of the biggest fitness brands in the world all because he brought the wrong music to class. Or take the story of Joe Gabia. Fifteen years ago, 15 years ago, so think about 15 years ago, Joe was having a garage sale when a stranger from out of town came to his garage sale and bought a piece of artwork from him. After he buys it, they start having some small talk and chatting when Joe discovers that this guy was going across the country to join the Peace Corps. Well, they're having a great conversation and Joe's asking him all about his travels and adventures when Joe then asks this complete stranger, guy he just met, he then asks him this question. He's like, so, you know, traveling across the country, you know, where are you going to stay tonight? To which the stranger says, well, actually, I don't have a place to stay. And immediately Joe thought, oh, man, great. What am I going to do now? And he just felt this inclination, well, this poor guy, I, I need to do something. So before he knew it, Joe offered this guy to sleep on an air mattress in his living room. So they go back to his apartment. He gets the guy all situated in, on his air mattress in his living room. And then Joe walks back to his bedroom and he lays down trying to fall asleep, but he can't. He's laying down and he's staring at the ceiling thinking, what have I done? a complete stranger is sleeping in my living room on an air mattress. What if this guy's psychotic? What am I going to do? What would you do in that situation if you had the stranger sleeping in your living room you don't know what to do? You know what Joe did? He got up from his bed and quietly tiptoed to his door and locked it. (laughs) Goes to bed the next morning, wakes up, this guy wakes up, they have breakfast together, Co- turns to find out this guy is not psychotic. He's a great guy, and actually that piece of art that he bought, the stranger, and now hangs in the classroom where he teaches a bunch of students. Do you happen to know what company this random and slightly odd encounter gave birth to? Airbnb. Airbnb. This was the experience that launched the company, Airbnb. How many of you have stayed at an Airbnb before? Well, you can thank that encounter. (laughs) Because if it weren't for that, Airbnb would not exist. All this to say, if you ever get a chance to listen to the podcast, How I Built This, you'll quickly learn this. Many, if not all, of the great products or businesses We enjoy today, please hear me. They were not intentionally thought of. No, rather, they came about through some mistake or happenstance. Many of the the great things that have been built today were not intentionally thought of, they came about through some mistake or happenstance. Indeed, how many great inventions? were discovered by accident, right? Since August, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. And this morning, we're back in Ephesians chapter 2, the second half of the chapter, verses 11 through 22. And faith, you know what we discover in these verses? Arguably, the greatest thing God has ever built. And you know what that is? his church you see in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 the Apostle Paul teaches this important truth and that is the blood of Christ makes the church one new man the blood of Christ makes the church one new man like we discussed several weeks ago On the cross, Jesus doesn't reconcile two hostile groups together, Jew and Gentile. No, he does something more, and that is, he makes them something better and new. By his son's sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, God has built, he has created, he has made the church one new man. As a great preacher of the early church, John Christostom has said, quote, referring to this passage, it is as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead, put them into a forge, and they came out a statue of gold. They have not only become one, they've become better. He's referring to how God through his son has brought Jew and Gentile together through union their union with Christ and created the church. The blood of Christ makes the church one new man. This is what God has built. Okay? But how How did the blood of Christ accomplish this? You know, we sing about the cross, we talk about the cross, we talk about the blood of Christ, but how does the blood of Christ make the church one new man? How does that that happen? Well, this is the exact question the Apostle Paul answers in our text this morning. In many ways, you could say our text this morning could be featured on the podcast podcast how I built this. Because our text explains exactly how the sacrifice of Christ, his shed blood on the cross, makes the church one new man. And as we're about to see, Paul didn't simply write this to entertain us like a podcast. And this is what I'm going to press into this morning. Faith, please hear me. The truth contained in these verses is meant to not only educate you on how God built his church, but also alter your behavior, Christian. It is meant to correct and change the way we interact with those in this church. Are you willing to receive this correction? I sure hope so. If so, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, that's page 977 in that white paperback Bible. Again, we're going to be focused, we're going to be looking at 11 through 22, but we're going to give special attention to verses 13 through 18. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 11. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us, (laughs) every person here, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh of hands, he says, Remember that you were at that time Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, notice, Paul calls all Gentile Christians to remember who you once were. He wants us to remember that we were at one time separated from God's Son, the Messiah. God's promises, the the covenants of promise, and God Himself. It's a very bleak picture. This is who we are in our natural state as Gentiles. We're separated from God's Son, we're strangers to the covenants of promise, and we're without God Himself. No wonder that he then says, having no hope in the world. However, Paul's going to say, through Christ, we've now been brought near, near to God. Because notice what he says there in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Friend, don't, don't miss this. In your natural state, you are not buddy-buddies with God. No one comes into this world... A child of God. As Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2, earlier in this chapter, we come in as children of wrath. We are far from God. What does he say in verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. This is where we get this main idea. The blood of Christ makes the church one new man. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God. So notice, both the Jew and the Gentile need to be reconciled to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And listen to this. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. And amen, this is God's good word. Uh, How many of you have ordered something maybe three months ago, six months ago, perhaps even a year ago, some supply, some furniture, something, and you still have not yet received it? Okay, yes, right. Looks like a couple of you. Due to government policies, there's a huge supply chain problem, isn't there? Right? Cargo ships with valuable freight are just sitting out at sea, waiting to come to port. And this supply chain issue is causing all sorts of problems for people who are building things, right? From car manufacturers to construction builders, many, looks like some of you included, cannot get the materials they need Because look, if you're going to build something or create something, you need the supplies to do it, do you not? As I mentioned, this text explains how God has made the church one new man through the blood of Christ. As I mentioned, it should really be an episode on how I built this. Because just like with everything else, for something to be built, you need supplies. (coughs) Well, notice the first thing we learn that the blood of Christ has accomplished in building the church into one new man. We learn that those who are far off have been brought near. Did you see it there in verse 13? This is to say the supplies that is the people needed to create the church have been acquired. They're no longer at sea, far away. No, they've been brought near. As many commentators have pointed out, verse 13 is a reference to Isaiah 57, 19. We're in that passage. The Isaiah, pro- the Isaiah promised peace, peace to those, he says, far and near. In Scripture, Gentile nations are referred to as being far, whereas Israel is described as being near. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 19, the prophet Isaiah imagined a day when the indescribably opposed people of Egypt and Syria, Gentile nations, as well as Israel, they would join together, Gentiles and Jews, in the worship of God. Notice, Paul is saying that Jesus brings that peace and he makes that people. (coughs) The supplies needed to create one new man have come from the nations. As author and pastor Tony Moreta has accurately said, in Christ... A new corporate entity exists, which is the church. It's not as though Gentiles have been transformed into Jews or vice versa. Rather, God has created one new man. And they didn't merely become one, though that is true. They have become better. Better. Sorry. Ugh. And faith this is really important for how we understand how the Bible fits together. Indeed, it's very important for how we understand God's future plans. For example, one popular notion is that in the future God must rapture his church off the earth so he can continue his plan with Israel. And the idea behind this notion is that there are two distinct peoples of God, separate and distinct, Israel and the church. However, I want to suggest that our text this morning clearly teaches otherwise, does it not? I mean, notice, according to this passage, there's not two distinct people of God, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ, there's now, listen to me, one new humanity. Right? The blood of Christ makes the church one new man. He has brought near those who are far off, right? Praise him. We are now the bride of Christ throughout all eternity. This is good news. Because of what Christ has done, there is one people of God, believing Jew, believing Gentile, the church. But then secondly, by his blood, Jesus has achieved our peace Look again at verses 14 through 17. As I read this passage, notice how these verses are framed by the theme of peace. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. On a recent flight back home, my family had to wait about an hour to go through security. Have you ever experienced a long line going through TSA? Anyone before? Yeah? This was at an airport in Ontario, the Ontario airport in California, and it was long and tedious. However, what made the wait all that more frustrating were these people, get a load of this? These people who just walked right past us all the way to the front of the line, going through security, lickety split to go to their planes. We're standing there and just keep walking by us, walking by us. You, and you know who these people were? These were the TSA pre-checked passengers. Are any of you in that class? Boo! <laughs> Boo to you. Oh, man. Take what? Listen. Listen. In that airport, like all the rest of the airports in the Fruited Plain, there was a small wall that separated us plebs from you high-class, pre-checked TSA people. And that wall was clearly marked in big letters. It stated, only those who are TSA pre-checked could enter. (laughs) Boom. Now listen. Faith, when Paul wrote this letter, there was a literal wall standing in the temple that excluded Gentiles. The Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus excuse me, described this wall as being about four and a half feet high with warning signs posted all around the wall in both Greek and Latin. Look all this. Two of those warning signs have been recently discovered, and this is what they read. Listen. No foreigner is to enter within the railing and enclosure around the temple. This one says, whoever is caught shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Now, interestingly enough, that same sign is listed on TSA pre-check lines. (laughs) I'm I'm joking, of course. But whoever is caught, there is this literal wall shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Notice, Paul states that Christ himself is our peace. Peace is the theme of this section, as that term occurs four times in verses 14 through 17. Christ is not merely the bringer of peace, but is himself peace. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is our peace? He himself is peace. Well, what this means is explained and developed in the following verses. And there's three things. First, as Paul states in verse 14, Christ is our peace in that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now, many Understand this as a reference to that wall in the temple which excluded Gentiles. When Paul says that Christ has broken down that wall, many understand that to be a reference to that literal wall. However, P.T. O'Brien is correct when he points out that this wall is really the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. Specifically, the food law, the Sabbath restrictions, and circumcision that would have separated the Jewish people from other cultures and religions around them. Please hear me, by his death and resurrection, Jesus has brought the curse of the old covenant to an end. He's abolished that, and he's ushered in a new covenant This is what Paul is getting at when he says Christ abolished the law. Paul is not claiming the law is completely useless or destroyed. Instead, notice the, the words there. The ordinances put in place to separate Jews and Gentile are no longer in force. So that's the first thing that Christ does as our peace. Second, as our peace, Christ has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, killing hostility. Friend, please hear me. As hostile as Jews were towards Gentiles, there exists an even greater hostility between sinful man and a holy God. Listen to me, and it goes both ways. In our sin, we hate God. And God, in our sin, has just wrath towards us. In our natural state, look, what has Paul said already? We are children of wrath. So notice, this is really important, both Jews and Gentiles need to be reconciled to God. Did you see that there? Now that Christ has come, the Jew stands outside of God's covenant privileges. This means that both Jew and Gentile need to find their salvation in Christ. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full judgment we are owed for our sin. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry so that all who are united to Christ by faith are not only forgiven of their sin, but they're credited with Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness, thus achieving peace between us and God. You see this? So as our peace, Jesus not only removed the barrier between Jew and Gentile, but he's also reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God. And then finally also, notice he preached peace. This is what Paul is referring to there in verse 17. I notice he preached to both near and far, Jew and Gentile. Now... uh, as, as Jim Fain one time said, uh, many trees gave their lives to understand what this actually means. Right? Lots of ink has been spilled. What does it refer to when it says that, and he came and preached peace? And although it's difficult to be certain, this probably refers to Jesus' preaching in the Spirit through his apostles. Now, to be sure, Jesus did preach peace during his earthly ministry. He called many to faith and repentance in him so they could be reconciled to God. However, the interpretation that this refers to Jesus' preaching in the Spirit through his apostles is supported by what we read just a few verses later in Ephesians 3, 5, and 3, 8, where Paul testifies that the mystery of Christ has been revealed to the apostles and especially to Paul himself to preach this message to the Gentiles. Now, so those are, the, those are the, this is what it means, 14 through 17. The heading is Christ is our peace, and now explains what that means. Right? He's reconciled Jew and Gentile together, he's reconciled Jew and Gentile to God, and he's proclaimed peace, and he's proclaiming peace through the apostolic witness. Now, this is not meant just to be some abstract pie-in-the-sky theology that ha- bears no weight in our lives. Christian, please hear me. The fact that Christ himself is our peace, that he has forgiven us of our sins and reconciled us to God, this truth is meant to alter the way we treat others. Do you know this, Christian? Christian. As Paul is going to make very, very explicit and clear in Ephesians 4, Christian, as one who has been forgiven, this means that as a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to forgive those who sin against you. This is not a suggestion, this is a command. And we are to forgive immediately. So you know what this means practically? It means practically, Christian, that you're not allowed to build up a wall of hostility between you and your offender through unforgiveness. There's no, well, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and let you know that I'm angry with you. Have I told you that I'm not happy with what you've done? You know, what you did really made me angry. I'm not pleased about that. I'm just going to sit here and be mad about it for a while. None of that. When someone tells me, and this will happen often in the counseling room, or just in regular discourse with Christians, when someone tells me, a Christian, a follower of the Lord, that they're unwilling to forgive their offender, or that they need time just to kind of soak in their anger towards that person, they're just going to wait to obey God's command to forgive their offender. When someone tells me that, they don't realize it. But in that moment, by that statement, they are revealing just how prideful and haughty their heart truly is. A person who just wants to stew in unpleasantness and anger towards the person who has sinned against them, a person who is unwilling to quickly forgive when someone has apologized and said they're sorry, that person has not only an unbiblical view of their own sin, a diminished view of the holiness and wrath of God, but most importantly, They have a very cheap view of the cross of Christ. Friend, the Bible teaches that no one has ever or will ever sin against you worse than you've sinned against God. You know why? Your sin was so awful, Jesus had to be crucified for you to be forgiven. On the cross, Jesus released us from the penalty we are owed due to our sin, which is damnation in hell for all eternity. But we think we're justified to just sit and just say, can you believe what they did? I'm not happy about it. I'm not pleased. And we just hold it on. And yes, I believe Jesus broke down the wall of hostility between me and God, but I want to build one up in front of you because you've done something that I don't like. Jesus released us from the penalty we are owed due to our sin. Let us be the people on this planet who are quick to forgive our offenders, releasing them from the penalty of their sin. Now, they still may have problems, they still may have issues, they still have things that they need to work on. Sure. But Paul says... Forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let us not hold an offense against our offender. But then second, we ought not only to forgive, but a strong implication from this passage also that we too are called to preach peace. Right? Christian, when was the last time you engaged a lost friend or coworker in a conversation about Christ? could I challenge us this Christmas season to be proactive in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others? Man, how terrible would it be of us, one who have received grace and mercy, one who have received peace from God through Christ, but we sit on this good news and we don't tell others about it. We who were damned in our sins, rightfully deserving the full wrath of God, yet been shown mercy upon mercy because someone came up to us and told us about Jesus, shame on us if we're not telling others. And, and my encouragement to us as a church is to just begin to have conversations and ask your friends, your co-workers, your acquaintances, just conversations about what they believe. Just, you know, a great one is, you know, do you have any spiritual beliefs? If so, what are they? What are your spiritual beliefs? Tell me, how did, how did you come to those conclusions about your spiritual beliefs? Then you can ask, have you, have you considered the claims of Jesus? What do you think about his claims? That he's the son of God and that salvation is only found in him. What do you think about those? Just begin the conversation. And then say, friend, I invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And encourage them to find their hope and put their trust In Jesus. Just by asking questions. What are your spiritual beliefs? And how did you come to those conclusions? What do you think of Jesus' claims? Then finally, by his blood. So he's, he's brought us near. He's achieved our peace. This is how God is building his church into one new man. And then finally... He's granted us access to the Father. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, right? We both need Jesus to get this. We have access in one spirit to the Father. How many of you remember the old TV show, and I'm going to date myself here, Get Smart? Remember how each episode began and ended? There's a scene with Maxwell Smart, and what is he doing? Oh, come on. He's he's going through all the doors, right? Tunnel after tunnel after tunnel. door. Door, 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 door. The point being, there wasn't easy access to the room he was trying to get to, right? Friend, I don't know what you've previously thought, but there's no easy access to God. Indeed, in the Old Testament, access to God was severely restricted. In our natural fallen state, please hear me, we are cut off. What is, has what is Paul said earlier? We are far off. Yet consider now what Paul teaches in this passage. Through Christ's atoning death and reconciling work, believers can enter the presence of God. If you're the note-taking type later on in Ephesians, Paul says that in Christ we have, quote, Boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. That's verse 12 of chapter 3. Believers have access through Christ in the Spirit with the Father. What a privilege! What a privilege! My, my son, for his 13th birthday, I took him to a Chiefs football game. He loves the Chiefs and we went to the game and we held out a sign, today's my 13th birthday, could I please get an autograph? And it made his day and everyone was around us got so excited when one Chiefs player would come over and say, hi Daniel, and sign his autograph. That small interaction, it was like, how great is that? You were able to interact with the Chiefs player for 10 seconds. You were provided access Christian, we have access to someone far greater than a football player, God himself, and it's all through Jesus Christ. I love what what John Stott has said. He captures it best. He says, this nearness to God, which all Christians enjoy through Christ, is a privilege we take too frequently for granted. Our God does not keep his distance or stand on his dignity, nor does he insist on any complicated ritual or protocol. On the contrary, through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we have immediate access to him as our Father. We need to encourage one another to make the most of this privilege. I know some of you grew up with distant fathers, some of you rarely saw your father. He was at work or doing his hobbies, but he was never around. That's not the case with our Heavenly Father. Amen? We can always have audience with him, and he's delighted to speak with his children. I just want to ask Christian, is this, is this true of you? Do you take this reality for granted? How often do you spend time with God in prayer? let us let us do as Stotz says here, let's encourage one another to make the most of this privilege. Indeed, just by way of application, I want to challenge you to pray for two specific requests. First, I would invite you to be praying for two or three friends or acquaintances of yours who are not Christians. Pray that God would save them. In fact, some of you right now might be one of those people on the list. That is, you're the person someone is praying for to become a Christian. You are far from God, you have no access to the Father because your sin remains a barrier. Friend, if you are here this morning and not a Christian, what are you waiting for? (laughs) What is preventing you from putting your complete trust and confidence in Jesus for the salvation of your soul? For now, I encourage you, let's today be the day of salvation. Confess your sin together. It's not a a, a hocus-pocus magic trick. But salvation comes to the one who confesses to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I am unable to save myself. I am trusting that what Jesus did and what he did alone is sufficient by dying on the cross and raising from the dead, that that was enough to forgive me of my sins and to be made right with you. Lord, I'm trusting in that alone. And I'm choosing to follow you. Friend, let... Receive this salvation by faith. But then second, for those who are Christians, I would encourage you to not only pray for your lost friends and acquaintances, but please also pray for our church and our church building. Join us next Sunday at 9 a.m. as we meet in this back room to pray. Faith by his blood, God has made the church one new man. Please hear me. Unlike many of the great products or services we enjoy today, the church did not come about by happenstance or mistake. Amen? No, God intentionally built this church, his church, by the blood of his son. Aren't we thankful for the cross? Aren't we thankful for Christ's atoning death? Aren't we thankful for this wondrous and beautiful creation? God has made in the church. The cross is central to God's plan of salvation. Faith may be central in our lives. Amen? Let's pray.